Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is once again part of Horror Month this year as we go through and I try to release eight horror movies in October. And our movie today is a fun one. This is a... Well, an, an old horror movie that I have loved for a long time. It's uh, considered a cult classic by some. It's considered kind of obscure by some. And it's one I've always wanted to feature. It's called Carnival of Souls, and it's from 1962, which immediately makes it the oldest movie I have ever done on Staff Picks. So welcome back to the black and white era, my friends. And my guest for this one is we're doing something a little different here. And you may recall I did this recently about a month ago on my uh, Citizen Ruth podcast where I had someone. It was kind of an obscure movie and I could not find somebody who knew it and loved it as much as I did. And so I thought, you know, what would be fun is take someone who maybe is unfamiliar with this movie, but is just good on podcasts and ask them to watch it and get their thoughts. And I thought that turned into a really fun episode, so I thought I'd do it again with this one. I just take a repeat host, someone who came on a while ago, and I really enjoyed their episode. And I'm like, I want to put you on another podcast, and I want your thoughts on this classic horror movie from 1962. So uh, you may remember him from one of my most memorable episodes I've ever done, the Friday the 13th Part 6 episode. His name is Brian Farrell. He is a recent college graduate, a horror movie fan. We had a really good discussion last time, including, I think, at least 10 minutes where we were arguing. So it was fun. I always like when people get on and challenge my thoughts and argue with me on the episodes because I think it's fun to listen to. So I had him watch Carnival of Souls for the first time. Again, this is way older than he is. And I'm very excited to find out what his thoughts are. So welcome to the show, Brian Farrell. Thank you, Mario. Uh, I know that this movie is one of your favorites. And like you said earlier, it's the oldest movie that you've ever featured on Staff Picks. And so I'm just so honored that you decided that the optimal person to talk about this movie with is a 22-year-old punk. So <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to be here today. Well, that's one thing I wanted to point out right off the bat, because I know you feel like you're a little out of your league here talking about a movie that's this old, that's like way before you were born. This movie's so old, it was before I was born. This is 12 years before my time, even. So we're on totally even playing ground. This is not of either of our times. No, that's fair. I, I'm sure that there's, um, you know, some uh, uh, cultural aspects of this movie that uh, you would be able to relate to a lot more than I would. I think one of the things that I, I definitely noticed was the size of the steering wheels of the, of the car in this movie. And um, I would imagine you would probably have a lot more experience with that than I would. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, even though this is before both of our times, we're able to uh, use our uh, combined wisdom of, of different generations to uh, come to a, a good conclusion about this movie. <laughs> so why don't you tell people a little about yourself? I just kind of gave them the short version. But uh, kind of how, how has your life changed since the world of Staff Picks thrust you into the spotlight a year and a half ago? Sure, yeah. So um, first time I was on Staff Picks, I was uh, a college student. I went to school for television and radio. Uh, actually, when we recorded our first podcast, I was home uh, from a semester in Los Angeles. So I uh, came home for a week, uh, watched all the Friday the 13th movies, did the podcast, and then went back to L.A. Um, and then since then, I've graduated. Uh, I now uh, work a full-time job. 
Um, you know, I, I just love uh, watching Carnival of Souls on repeat. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's become a, a real pastime of mine. And, and I'm so glad that uh, it's, I think it's been around a year and a half since we last uh, had our first talk. And, um, you know, my mother always, always said to me as a little kid that uh, her dream for me was, would be that I would be able to do two Staff Picks podcasts. Um, <laughs> but what she said to me was that one of them has to be the man with two brains. So I really, you know, I really failed on that front. But I'm happy to be here regardless. Well, thank God your mom didn't wish for you to be on three episodes, because I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Yeah, well, you know, uh, stranger <laughs> things have happened, and uh, stranger things have definitely happened in Carnival of Souls. So. <laughs> Okay, thank you for steering us back on the topic here. So, uh, yeah, once again, I asked Brian to sit down and watch this movie, and I was uh, kind of interested because this it's a very much a movie of its time. This is nothing like any other movie I've covered on Staff Picks, and I was pleased, without going too far into it, you said you liked it right off the bat, right? I did like this movie. Uh, I think for me, this movie falls into the very uh, particular category of I simultaneously like this movie. I'm glad that I watched it. But at the same time, I really don't want to watch it again. Um, <laughs> I had to uh, I, I watched it twice over the course of the last few days, one time just to watch the other time just to take notes and um, watching it so close together. It just uh, it it really messes with you. It's not a, it's not a pleasant movie by by any account. Um, so I I would say that this is a movie that I I definitely enjoy. Um, I'm glad that it's something that I can talk about, and I'm glad that I'm now uh, a part of the Carnival of Souls uh, uh, fandom, as you would call it. But at the same time, uh, n not anytime soon do I plan on watching this movie again. Well, that's interesting because. Now, if it's a comedy and you say, I don't want to watch this again, that's an interest like that, that's not a recommendation for a horror movie that might actually be, you know, high praise because it's like, oh, this movie's unpleasant to sit through and it bothers me and it's disturbing. That's why I don't want to see it again. Is that indeed what you're saying? Oh, yeah, that's definitely what I'm saying. Um, you know, uh, there are a couple of times when I was watching this movie the first time where I'm like, oh, I really just want to look away from the screen because I don't like what I'm seeing right now. You know, not unlike when I would watch the uh, original Friday the 13th movies and whenever I would see boobs, I would, uh, you know, cover my eyes and try to look away. Uh, fortunately for this movie, there's not a nipple in sight, but, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, very disturbing images that are just like, oh, I just don't like looking at this. <laughs> Well, okay, that's really interesting. Let's let's delve into that for a second, because you're tying into one of the things that I love the most about this movie. There is not a drop of blood in this movie. There's no gore. There's no jump scares, no boobs. Like, this is basically a Twilight Zone episode that you could put on TV. So it's very tame in that sense. In fact, I almost hesitate to call it a horror movie. Would you agree with that? Uh, I would say... Semi agree with that. I think, I mean, I guess, you know, your whole definition of, of horror movie depends on the individual, but this is a, a, a psychological thriller, I guess you could definitely say, because um, mm -hmm. it definitely plays with your mind and it plays with the mind of the, the main character in the movie. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this movie was rated PG, right? I believe so. I see no reason this would be rated R. Right, yeah. So, uh, like you said, there's no blood, you know, there's very little things that could scare you just beyond one particular thing that keeps happening. 
Um, and then that the climax of this movie and really the last 20 minutes or so is when it really kind of kicks into kicks into gear and they're just you're just thrust, you know, in your face with all these different uh, disturbing things that will really, uh, you know, really mess with you. Yeah, the way I've always described Carnival of Souls is that it's creepy more than scary. Like, it's certainly not a modern horror movie. In fact, I, I introduced my daughter to it a while back. She's 21, 20, 20. <laughs> She's 20, I should know that. She's 20, <laughs> and she, I, she loves modern horror movies, and I showed her this, and I was kind of on pins and needles wondering if she was going to like it. But she told me afterwards, she's like, I really like that. So I thought, oh, full steam ahead. If my daughter likes this one, I'm going to go ahead with it. But it's not... It's nothing like what you what people would see would uh, would expect from a modern horror movie. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, like you said, definitely not a lot of jump scares. I can't think of one off the top of my head. No blood, you know. There's not really any type of uh, killing in it, or really uh, things that would make the average person scared, other than just these. Uh, external fantastical elements that are uh you know at play and that and i guess one good thing that this movie really does is it puts you in the perspective of the main character which is you know like no kidding but in the sense of just as she's experiencing all these types of horrible things in her head and she's has all these questions and she's confused we're right there with her because we don't have any more answers than she does you know, so we are are just as confused. We're just as uh, scared, if you want to call it that. We're, you know, we're just as terrified as she is. And, um, you know, I think overall, the the one thing that I would say really creeps me out about this movie, uh, above anything else, is organ music. <laughs> Good. Uh, I, coming into this movie, I didn't have much of an opinion on organs. Um, but I, I think it's safe to say after watching this movie a couple of different times that I'm I'm definitely of, of the opinion that organs are, are not a good thing. Um, they they the, the contribution that they have to this movie and what they do to really uh, help create the mood and help make the movie feel as creepy as it is, is is just as important as anything else you're you're actually seeing on screen. I think if you take the, the music out of it, um, you know, the, the product that you have is uh, is vastly vastly different and, and definitely not as creepy oh yeah but you could say the same thing about halloween like i that's i think that's how i described halloween on my uh, staff picks episode it's just people walking around pasadena and then you put the music in there and it's a whole different experience and that's this movie too it's just a woman walking around salt lake city but there's creepy carnival or church organ music yeah no and i i think um to go along with that um, and I don't know if you want to tie this into the actual discussion of, you know, the uh, events of the movie. But as far as I'm aware, basically all the music in this movie is organ music. The only time, time you're hearing music that isn't organ music is in two very short snippets uh, in the, near the beginning of the movie and near the end of the, of the movie. Every other time you hear music, it's, a, it's organ music. So, you know, they really want to drill the organ thing into your head and um and it definitely sticks with you and it <laughs> it really um you know it takes this movie to a whole nother level i'm so happy you said that because that's what i think of when i think carnival of souls is that organ music it's so distinct and i cannot think of any other movie in my lifetime that features music like to that extent where it becomes the movie yeah no i think um i think it's also interesting how 
the organ music itself is important to the movie, but it's also a part of the plot. So it's it's uh, the main character plays the organ for a church. And so there is a reason why we have organ music and why we have it frequently and why it plays a role in her, I guess, psyche, just because it's something that she's exposed to all the time. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it's just a constant presence in this in this movie, you know, it, it, it I guess it, if there was just organ music in the scenes where she's playing the organ, that's one thing. But the fact that they take that and then just really just hammer it in with organ music every few minutes and it's long, long um, stretches of organ music. Like that's going to be the only thing that you're hearing for a, a large portion of the movie. Yeah, the so. movie's almost almost silent at times. It's just music oh, yeah. and that's it. Yeah, I think this movie does a great job with incorporating music, incorporating silence, and then also incorporating very selective sounds. Um, like there's p- portions of this movie where the only thing you're hearing is the footsteps of the main character. Or, um, and and I, I think that's also included as part of the plot too. And again, you know, this is something that we can get into a little bit later once we um, go through the movie, but uh, sounds and uh, how sounds can help you interact with the world around you is a really important uh, part of this part of this movie too. And I think it, it helps to create that horror when you hear certain things or you don't hear anything at all. So I think uh, just as this movie has some really um, creepy visuals in it, it, it definitely has a very creepy sound design too that really, really, really helps to, uh, to make this a, a unique movie. You know, I'm really glad I picked you. And I hope my listeners, listening to the stuff that he points out, like the sounds, selective sounds and stuff, I could tell in a second that you studied TV and editing and stuff, because those are great observations. I'm glad you're really talking about it this already. Sure, yeah. Well, that's because, you know, I start off with the really strong stuff, and then eventually it's going to get downhill to when I'm nitpicking individual stuff and poking fun at the movie, <laughs> which which I do with love, mind you. Every every nitpick that I have is just just, you know, poke fun at the movie but i'm doing it with full appreciation i'm not trying to trash anybody's favorite movie or anything oh yeah well i should point out they they covered this movie on riff tracks you know what riff tracks is right uh i know riff raff from the rocky horror picture show (laughs) riff tracks is the modern version of mystery science theater where they took old movies and watched them and they covered this on riff tracks and they just riffed on it and made fun of it so i was a little hurt by that because i don't think this movie really deserves it but at the same time there are things you can nitpick, and it's so easy to mock because it's silent because there's no so little dialogue. But I, I have seen it mocked out of love before. And the creators of Rift Tracks have even said they love this movie. So it was out of love then as well. Sure, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, we wouldn't be uh, having this discussion if we didn't uh, enjoy this movie and we didn't have a certain appreciation for this movie. You know, we're, we're, we're doing this as a – this is an underrated movie podcast. This is not, you know, a uh, let's uh, dog on – everyone's uh cult classic movies podcast so we're, we're everything we're doing is, uh, is is very genuine and from the heart okay and now comes the fun part of the podcast my friend brian here specifically did no research on the history of this movie you know nothing about how this movie came about or how it's been received over time correct i know nothing i went into this like it was a presentation for one of my college classes i went completely blind and i'm winging it Okay, good. So I will drop some info on you. So 
This movie was made in 1962, very early in the modern horror boom, two years after Psycho. So we're very early in the Twilight Zone era, Alfred Hitchcock era. And this movie made no impact whatsoever. It it was a financial flop. It, It had no legacy whatsoever. In fact, not only that, they forgot to put a copyright on the print, so it immediately went into public domain the day it was released. (laughs) <laughs> so right. yeah so just for people who are listening you can watch this on youtube for free carnival of souls is everywhere it's free no one ever made a cent off it yeah i the the, the first time i ever watched this movie I, I watched it on youtube uh it's it's also on hbo max if that's something that you're so inclined to watch <laughs> okay yeah so this movie made no impact but along the way a lot of filmmakers future filmmakers like george romero david lynch saw this movie and it kind of stuck in their heads and they all said this was a big influence on night of the living dead Eraserhead, these art movies later because they there's just something about this movie that's eerie and evil and it just you remembered it's so different and it later developed a renaissance where it developed word of mouth so even though it was virtually unknown from 1962 through about 1985 in the late 80s it kind of was rediscovered and they gave it a big release a re-release in the theaters and it kind of became this modern cult classic even though for 27 years nobody cared about it and then all of a sudden it was one of the most beloved horror classics of all time and again it's a very influential movie despite the fact that nobody ever made a cent off of it yeah no i i definitely believe everything you just said uh before you introduced me to this movie i had never even heard of it um, I consider myself to be a, a, a decent, uh, decent enough horror fan. Um, but that being said, I've never heard of this whatsoever. Um, but with those particular movies that you had uh, had mentioned, um, you know, in regards to it having an influence on those movies, I definitely understand that. Uh, the fact that this was so early on in, um, I guess, the uh, movie, the history of movies. Uh, you know, we're post uh, the old monster movie era. We're, uh, you know, in the in the heat of all these uh, great Hitchcock films. And uh, we're, we're before all the, uh, you know, the uh, the craziness and campiness of uh, the 70s and 80s. So I think we're in a nice sweet spot in the history of horror, um, you know, enough for, for this to, uh, to make a, a definite impact moving forward. And one could also call this the very first zombie movie. Now, Night of the Living Dead usually gets credit for this, but... This technically, if you look at some of the imagery, those are probably zombies, dead, walking dead. I guess I should really explain to people what this movie's about. It's uh, about a woman who gets in a car crash, and she kind of straddles the line between still being alive or being dead. And she's kind of caught between the two worlds. Is she alive or is she dead? And it's all about souls and hell and death coming for her, her not ready to go, or not being really realizing what's going on. But there are some scenes with people that I believe would be considered walking dead zombies. So I think this would be the first zombie movie perhaps. Sure. Yeah. I, I think in particular, just the last, uh, last few minutes of this movie, you know, there's uh, a, a chase scene that if you had told people it was from uh, a night of the living dead or, or any of these other major uh, zombie films, they would, uh, they would definitely believe it. Yep. Okay. And let's see here. Oh, I got to give you the filmmaker trivia. Would you believe Brian this is the only movie the director ever directed. I would believe that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very amateurish, but it kind of works in a way. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I 
think for me, as a very general note, I find a lot of charm in um, mistakes. And there are definitely a lot of um, mistakes just in terms of production wise, uh, some mistakes in this. And, and that makes the movie a lot more endearing to me. Um, and I did see, and I, I don't count this as doing research because I, I saw it underneath, but the, the cast for this movie, uh, the director also is like the, the main uh, villain character of this movie, correct? He plays him? Yeah, he's the main guy, the corpse guy. Sure. Do we know why he chose to do that? I will tell you. Okay, I'll drop some more trivia. So this movie was directed, written, not, okay, not written, directed and produced by a man named Herc Harvey, who created industrial films in Kansas. That's all he did. He created these educational films. And one day when he was driving from Kansas to the West Coast, he drove through Salt Lake City and he saw this abandoned amusement park sitting out there on the Great Salt Lake. It was called the Salt Air Resort. And anybody who's seen this movie knows what the Solitaire Resort is, because this entire movie revolves around it, this abandoned amusement park. And the guy was driving by it. He's like, huh, I'd like to write him. I'd like to make a movie about that place. That looks creepy. <laughs> so, yeah, he, yeah, he put, raised money, got investors, threw it all together, had a friend write a script for him. And he basically threw together the cheapest movie possible where he couldn't afford to hire actors. That's why he is also the star as the bad guy. And I guess when he saw this abandoned amusement park, he said to himself, you know, it would be a really great idea for me to say that this is the entrance to hell. <laughs> yes. I, I Personally, abandoned amusement parks are one of the creepiest things to me. Like I when I see websites, there's websites out there dedicated to amusement parks and malls that have been abandoned over the years and are like overgrown. And those are like crack to me because I think those are the greatest settings for horror movies. And that's why I was always attracted to this one. Like, my God, this salt air place is so cool. I wish I could have gone there when it was standing. Now, what makes you so interested in them? Like, is it the the fact that there's, I don't know, like some weird imagery in some of these parks? Like you can see like a fun house or something like that. And even though, you know, when people are in it, it's, it's not exactly creepy. But then all of a sudden when it's when it's quiet, it's, it's super creepy and all that stuff. What is it about abandoned amusement parks that really interests you? I'm not entirely sure, and it's, you know, a lot of people think clowns are creepy, and, like, if you go on the, the merry-go-round with the, the carnival music, and you, like, grab the rings and throw them in the ring toss, I always thought those were so creepy with that organ music. Just the whole idea of a carnival is always borderline cool slash creepy, and when you find an abandoned one where there's just the stuff is left, but there's no people, I just love, I think it's so haunting to look at. I don't really know how to describe it any better than that. Sure. Yeah, I know that you're definitely not the only person that has that obsession, because I think on YouTube, there's a, a pretty decently sized, uh, I don't know, fan base for uh, abandoned amusement parks, because mm -hmm. you see, I, I get in my recommended, I never watch them, maybe I should after watching this movie, but, you know, I see a lot of these stories of, of real life abandoned amusement parks, and they have all these views, and, you know, people will write these uh, horror stories about uh, it's it's Disney after dark, and then all these crazy things are happening. Uh, so you know, there's there's definitely uh, an audience for this type of thing, and I, I never really understood it myself. But after watching this movie, I I am starting to understand it. 
Yeah, because that's the real star of this movie, the Salt Air Pavilion in Salt Lake City, which, again, was a real place. I did the research here. It was a huge resort back in the 1890s up through World War II. And then after World War II, the popularity of this place just went down. Like, if people have been to, like, Coney Island, uh, Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, depending on which coast you're on, it was like one of those places on the Great Salt Lake. And then it was abandoned, and it sat abandoned from, like, 19... 50 something to the 70s for like 20 years and uh that's when they filmed this movie in the middle when it was just sitting there anybody could drive by and take pictures of this and i'm just so fascinated that this guy wrote a movie just based around the fact that he saw this resort and he's like i want to set a movie there and he did it's really it was a real place so the carnival that's in this movie is that resort yes that is the salt air resort in salt lake city which has been rebuilt. They rebuilt it in the 80s, and I believe it still exists today. It's like a country music uh, venue where they have uh, concerts and stuff, but it looks much different. It's the same location. They just rebuilt it because the one you see in this movie burned down, I think, in the late 60s or uh, yeah, 60s or 70s, somewhere in there. Yeah, well, one thing that I was, uh, you know, was initially struggling to come to terms with when watching this movie is that you know, this movie was made in 19, or it was at least released in 1962. And for them in the 60s, an old abandoned place is a lot different from us living in whatever current year it is thinking about an old abandoned place. Because an old abandoned place for them is, you know, like, like you said, something from the eight, late 1800s mm-hmm. through World War II. Whereas for us, you know, we could have an abandoned place from 1980 and it could be creepy. Yeah. And so uh, just thinking about, for them, what they view as uh, something that's all this old, creepy thing is, is different from the way that we would view it. We would view something from the 1960s that hasn't been touched as the same way that they would view something from 1900 as, mm-hmm. as being creepy. Yeah, and that's why I think really works in this movie's favor, because it's old to begin with. So it's dated and kind of weird. It's not the world that we're used to if you watch it now. And it involves a place that was old even to them in the 60s. So it's like doubly old. Like that's I just love the age in this, whether the, whether the age works for the telling of the story. I just, again, the, it was a real place. I've, I used to, I've driven by there in Salt Lake City. I'd seen it before. And every time, if I'm ever, ever in the area, I want to go. Uh, take my daughter to it because I want to show her the Saltair Resort. That was where they filmed Carnival of Souls. So it's like, I think this is the only major movie they ever filmed there. So it's like a little time capsule. Yeah, and I think uh, just hopping onto the whole thing about the, the location, one of one thing that I find particularly interesting about this is that I think um, in many horror movies, when there's a that's centered around a location, there's a tendency to try to give it a, a specific backstory. Like, uh, oh, there was this big fire and all these people died or there was a serial killer there and there's all these ghosts and stuff like that. For this movie, they really don't have that. It's just that we get the story of it used to be a bathhouse, then it was a dance hall, then it was a carnival. Now it's abandoned. There's no Mm -hmm. real story behind it that would make it be any creepier than any other location. So I think that's one thing that's interesting is that for the people that are in the world of this movie, this is just an abandoned location. It's not like it's uh, somewhere where it's like, oh, you got to keep out from there. There's all these stories of things that happen in there. And so I think that was an interesting, interesting choice by uh, by the filmmakers. <laughs> well, it was functional, too. I was just reading this on the trivia today that the Salt Air was a, you know, a condemned old resort. And the director said... 
hey, can we film there? And the city of Salt Lake City said, uh, sure, give us 50 bucks. And so for 50 bucks, he got it for three days. So it's just functional. He, he had a very limited budget. He's like, well, all we can do is give it three days. We can't really gussy it up or decorate it. We'll just set part of our movie here. So again, a lot of the stuff that happened in this movie was kind of accidental because the director was cheap and had, had no budget. Well, they paid $50 and got a few days for filming at the movie. Uh, nowadays, you could pay $50 and get a couple hours at an amusement park. So <laughs> That's true. Minus the giant steering wheel, though. That was the difference. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's walk through Carnival of Souls here, which, again, is a very short movie. I think the copy, the version that I saw was only 77 minutes. It's a very short movie. Yeah, the same thing that I saw. It was like hour, hour 18, whatever that is, 78 minutes, 77. Yeah, but again, if you've never seen it, it's a fun little nightmare of a movie. Don't go into it expecting a modern horror movie. It's just like a... It's like watching a bad dream where everything's just off a little bit. It's a weird movie, but it somehow will stick in your head. As Brian said, he doesn't want to watch it anymore, which as horror movies go again, once again, that's high praise. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also important for us to know in regards to the length is just how little plot there is to this. Like there's maybe like four or five actual story beats to this movie. If you try to explain the plot to someone, you could probably finish it in like 15 seconds. So there's not a lot that really happens. It's just kind of all of these things happening around the plot that are that are the most interesting about this movie. So I'm looking forward to uh, to going into that. Okay. And again, there's a lot of interpretation to come out of this movie. It's not cut and dry what happened. So I'm excited at the end. We're going to try to talk about what we think happened in this movie. Yeah, let's uh, let's get to it. All right. I'm glad that this has far more uh, room for interpretation as compared to Friday the 13th, part six. Well, you know, with that, after I uh, listened to the uh, the director's commentary to it, along with uh, the uh, editor of the movie and the actor who played Deputy Rick, you know, there was no uh, no secrets there. I got everything I needed to know. Everything <laughs> was, you know, very clearly laid out. <laughs> so did I miss something in, in Jason Lives? It was like a Christ metaphor, the whole story. Did I miss it somehow? I think actually in the deleted scenes for it, there there was uh, one part where one of the little girls at the camp uh, looked up at the sky and whispered, thank you. And that didn't make it into the final cut of the movie. So there was there was some religious stuff that uh, that didn't make it. Um, but I guess that they would save that for uh, for part nine when Jason goes to hell. Actually, Jason goes Jason goes to hell opens with him going to the Carnival of Souls. Oh, wow. So it all comes full circle. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so here we go. We'll walk through this nightmare of a movie. That, again, I cannot recommend this more. I used to have a website, a, a list on Facebook called 10 Great Horror Movies Most People Have Never Seen. This was always number one, the first one I mentioned because it was so old. But we will walk through it here. So uh, uh, how does this movie start? It starts with a drag race, correct? Yeah, this movie, this doesn't waste any time. Um, it jumps right into it with a drag race. We got a car full of guys. We got a car full of girls. And um, they're just, they're at it, drag racing all through the streets of wherever. I don't know if the uh, beginning location of this movie is ever stated. It's Kansas. But, um, Kansas is where it's filmed. Kansas. Okay, great. Um, so I, I will say that another thing that I learned from this movie is that drag racing looks absolutely miserable. <laughs> now, why do you say that? Well, I mean, we have our main character. Her name is Mary. And throughout the entirety of this drag, ra drag racing sequence, 
every time it cuts to her, she has this like horrified look on her face. Like I thought drag racing was supposed to be fun. She's not, she's not, this isn't selling me on drag racing at all. You know, Brian, if you're expecting Mary to smile in this movie, you're going to be very disappointed. Well, just wait until she meets Mr. Linden. (laughs) Yes. Our main character, if you've never seen this, has an enormous stick up her butt the whole movie. She never enjoys anything. And I I understand it. With uh, drag racing and uh, demons and organ music, there's not much to enjoy here. (laughs) But it's Kansas. Kansas in the 40s, or where are we, 60s. What could be more fun than Kansas in the 60s? Well, you know, there's no place like home. (laughs) Well done. Nice. (laughs) Okay, yeah, so we start with a drag race. It's two guys against three girls, which I don't remember another movie where girls drag race against guys. It's usually guys. But for purposes of this movie, it's a car full of three girls, the unsmiling Mary and her two friends. And they're drag racing across a bridge, which is a real bridge in Kansas. They had to rent for the movie. And uh uh-oh, the car with the three girls hits a loose board, goes spinning off into the water. And basically, we're to assume all three of the girls drowned. It's a tragedy. Yeah, and I think actually uh, another fun fact about this movie, and I know I said I didn't do uh, I didn't do any research, but there was this, this inescapable thing that you know I I, I had to mention is that uh, in a deleted scene from Back to the Future Part Three, Marty McFly went back in time and watched Carnival of Souls, and that's what convinced him to not drag race needles at the end of the movie. <laughs> I thought it was the chicken subplot that did it. Uh, well, I think later in the movie, uh, uh, Mr. Linden does refer to one of his buddies as chicken. So that, that might be a McFly descendant or, or ancestor, I guess. <laughs> okay, here's some fun fact about this movie. This uh, sequence at the start where a car crashes through this wooden bridge and goes into a lake or a river, I guess. That was They really filmed that, and it was one of the big stunts in the movie that the director basically went to this little town in Kansas and said, can I break your side rail for a movie? And they said, yes, but you have to fix it afterwards. So he drove a car through the wooden bridge, he dumped it into the river, and then he had to rebuild the side of the bridge that broke, and it cost $19, which in a, in a $30,000 movie, that was a sizable expense. Now, was the other 29000 uh just the fact that he dumped a car in the water and he had to uh, deal something with that? <laughs> yeah, they didn't mention that in the trivia, so I'm not sure how much the ruining of the car was in their budget. But they do <laughs> really throw a car upside down into a, into a river, which is impressive for this little movie. Yeah, definitely. And it sinks fast. <laughs> yeah, well, gravity was much stronger back then, back in the 60s. Well, you know, what with the ozone layer and all that stuff. <laughs> yes. So Mary and her two friends, who she apparently doesn't appear to enjoy, all go into the water and they're presumed drowned. And like I said, this movie is kind of a person caught between the world of the living and the dead where, you know, the two friends, they can't they can't find the car. That's what I remember. They bring out searchers. They can't find it. And all of a sudden, after hours of searching, Mary kind of wanders out of the river and she's barefoot and walking through the mud. They're like, how the hell did that girl survive? But somehow she did. Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that uh, their idea of searching is kind of just taking a really small grappling hook and throwing it into the water a bunch of times in the hopes that they'll pick up the car, I guess. <laughs> These were simple times, Brian. Simple country folk. I think I, I also noticed at one point uh, we have all these extras looking for them. And I think I, I might have seen uh, at the time current Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, with the with the clipboard during the search party. <laughs> wow. He was a good get for, for that a movie this size. 
Well, that's that's where the rest of the budget went towards. <laughs> they couldn't get Nixon. Well, they had to get uh, LBJ off the toilet to uh, to come and do this movie. <laughs> so yes, Lin- President Lyndon Johnson and his searching pals cannot find the car. Somehow Mary survives, and she's like the only survivor of this horrible accident in the town. And and I think from there we just cut to her the next day playing the pipe organ. This is where we're going to learn the. We're not going to learn much about this character other than she's a cold fish. She's not especially fun to hang around, but she plays a mean organ. <laughs> she plays a mean organ, and she's all business. <laughs> she is. She she went to college. She studied pipe organ, I think they say. She was at the top of her class because she was the only one in the class. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, so, okay, I guess we should talk about the actress. The actress in this movie, her name is Candace Hillegoss. And she really didn't do many other movies. This is like her only big one, no one on her resume. And again, this movie was a flop. And I remember reading somewhere, her agent hated this movie so much that the minute he saw it, he refused to represent her anymore. <laughs> so this is her one claim to fame. But she's in this movie a lot, and she's surprisingly really good for such an amateur movie. She does kind of carry it and sell it. Yeah, and like I said earlier, you know, we see this movie through her eyes. We're experiencing things just as she's experiencing things. And so when she's terrified, we feel that we feel that too. So I I think uh, you know, she definitely gave a a very good performance. Um, not just her. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did anybody in this movie go on to do anything else because I don't I didn't recognize a single person in this movie. I uh, know the guy Mr. Linden, the other uh boarding house guy, the creepy guy. He later became the drama teacher at the University of Oklahoma, but he never starred in anything else. Okay. Well, I think it also says something about Mr. Linden's character when there is uh, quite literally a uh, a demon character in this movie, and yet you refer to him as the creepy guy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's only, f- I think there was five people in the crew for this movie. There's like six actors total. It's again, it's so bare bones and low budget, and it's amazing that it actually works. That's the crazy thing. And as we get along, as we go along, I'll point out some other examples of how cheap it is. Yeah, and I also uh, want to give a shout out to all the extras in this movie because I think um, you know a lot of the times extras like to phone it in, but everyone in this movie, all the extras, they're they're doing their best. They're really trying hard. Um, you know, whether they're uh, they're dancing around in the bar. Or um, you get the one guy who I, who I made a note about at the search party who uh, looks at the water for a second, shrugs his shoulders, and then walks away. You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people really trying their best in this movie. <laughs> and that was the 10th take. It took him a while to get that shrug right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yes, our main character name is Mary Henry, and she has survived this horrible accident, and she is getting ready to leave for a job. Again, we're starting in Kansas. She has a job in Utah, which I guess would be an upgrade from Kansas. I'm not sure how that works on the scale. But it's a there's a church out in Salt Lake City that has hired her to play the pipe organ, and she's packing up and getting ready to go. And I think we see her with her mentor here or her last uh, employer. And he's like, you know, that's that's a good job, but you'll be you'll be in a church now. You should you should put a little soul into your music in church. And she's like, I don't believe in God. That's it's just a business to me. I don't I have no interest in the church whatsoever. And that will be a minor subplot to this movie. She doesn't believe in religion. Yeah, and I think uh, this scene takes place in an organ factory, I believe, because uh, there's a lot of shots of uh, workers doing all of this work, and there's a bunch of organs all over the place. Um, I also wanted to point out that uh, in the background of one of these shots, there's like a sexy calendar, um, 
we're in the workshop and uh, we see these guys hard at work. And if you look closely, you can see the sexy calendar in the background. So <laughs> given this movie a little personality. It's, so it's a auto garage slash pipe organ factory. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, they had to cut costs somehow. So they decided to just, uh, you know, shoot, shoot a, a one location as uh, two different places. I never, I never thought about where she was, but that it does look like a pipe organ factory or like, yeah, it's the, <laughs> the organ store. Apparently they're selling a lot of pipe organs around there. Yeah. Well, the, this is uh, this was a place for all the organ donors where they wanted to go. They would just go and leave their organs there. <laughs> that was terrible, but I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. That's good. All right. <laughs> So, so, all right, so Mary packs up, and again, she's just a single gal in the 60s, doesn't have a boyfriend, doesn't want a boyfriend, kind of a liberated woman for her time, and we get a big, long montage of her driving from Kansas to Utah, and I love this scene. This is creepier than it has any right to be, because it's all shadows and organ music on her creepy drive into Utah. Yeah, well, I think the the scene starts off with, one of the few instances that I mentioned earlier where there's actual music playing, but then it very quickly transitions into that organ music. Um, and then I, I do like how once the organ music starts, we see Mary frantically trying to adjust the radio. Um, so it's kind of uh, like giving us the implication that she's hearing organ music too, even though that's probably not the case. Um, but yeah, I agree. This is definitely a, a very creepy scene. I um I did want to point out though the uh, the sign for Utah that said "Welcome to Utah, please drive carefully." Mm-hmm. Um, so that just gives me uh, it, it implies that um, inside of Utah they're very big on their traffic laws, but outside of Utah it's just total lawlessness. You know, <laughs> they, you can't you don't want to drive carefully in Kansas. They don't care in Utah though. That's where you got to watch out. Wyoming is just a hellscape. Yeah, well, you know, when when you get uh, all these crazy drag races happening all over the place, I guess uh, Utah felt the need to just put that disclaimer in there. <laughs> Do I need to point out that the drag race at the start of the movie is that they drive at very sensible speeds of about 25 miles an hour? Yeah, well, and then and I didn't want to, you know, point this out, too, but I didn't you said that that they drove off the bridge because they hit a loose board. I did not get that indication from watching it. It kind of just looked like they just fell um, like she very quickly. They all started screaming. And then next thing you know, they were in the water like they didn't show the other car bumping them off or anything. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll allow it. You know, Brian, women drivers. Am I right? Oh, this is getting cut, isn't it? <laughs> No, but I think I think they meant to have a stunt there where the car hits something, but they didn't have the budget to film it. So the car just suddenly veers off the bridge. But something happened. Take our word for it. Well, they only had so much wood to replace uh, the, already the destruction they did on the bridge. So they didn't want to, you know, have to shell out another twenty dollars or whatever it was. <laughs> OK, so, yeah, this is a really long, eerie scene of Mary just driving along. And again, they didn't have the budget to film like normal movies do where you have a backdrop behind the car so it's really cheaply done but it's a neat little eerie effect where it's very claustrophobic she's in her car all by herself and we get this eerie pipe organ music now brian and i have tried to already in this podcast sell you on how creepy this music is i don't know if we can really get it across without playing it for them would you say is there any way to describe how eerie this music is when you hear it over and over Oh, no, it is. It is very, very creepy. So much to the point where when I was watching this movie the second time around to take notes, I had considered 
uh, putting it on mute just so I wouldn't have to listen to the organ music. Wow. Yeah, it really got to me. Yeah, if you guys are, are obviously if you're listening to this point in the podcast, the music that I start this started this episode with is a old Four Seasons song called uh, Save It For Me. And there's a really creepy synthesizer organ part in the middle of that song I've always liked. And that's, if you think back to the start of the episode, it's very similar to that music you heard. It's just, you get this weird, dreamlike pipe organ carnival organ music it's just it's the entire soundtrack for the rest of the movie it just tells you something's a little off here yeah well the good thing about this movie being in the public domain is that you could uh rip the entirety of the organ music and uh and play it under underneath this entire podcast and uh, no one would be able to come after you so if they really they really want to uh you can include that in as a as a bonus feature <laughs> Well, it's funny. I was just reading that one of the reviews of this movie, one of the contemporary reviews of Carnival of Souls said, you could take a camcorder outside with four of your friends and basically recreate this entire movie. It wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, no, I agree. As long as you're willing to, um, you know, pay the money that you need to uh, repair any bridges or rent out any carnivals, you know, <laughs> I, I, I definitely agree with that. You know, like you said, this was something that was uh, low budget. It was, um, you know, uh, uh, not the most uh, renowned group of people that came together to do it. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot of heart. It's got a lot of soul, I guess you could say. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's not the most complex movie in the world from a production standpoint. Yeah, but I will. I mean, all those aside, you're not wrong about any of those. But I will say it was made by someone who knows how to tell a increasingly creeping evil story. That's all I can say. That's I've seen modern movies with way higher budgets that don't do that as well as this movie, where they just it's a uh, escalation of a story from nothing into something. It's just the the momentum of this movie is very good. Yeah, the momentum's good. Uh, the pacing I, is very good. I think once we hit that halfway point is when things really start to go crazy. Um, and I noticed, and you know, the only reason you notice that is just because the first half of this movie, it it takes its time, and it you know it'll sprinkle in these creepier moments, and it'll start making you wonder, you know, a couple different things. But then once once we hit the halfway point, you know, and, and everything starts going insane, you know, there's there's no turning back. It's uh, it's just one bizarre thing after another. <laughs> I love that a 77-minute movie can take its time, but it does. Yeah. Somehow it does. <laughs> it really does. And I guess that, that could also, uh, that can happen when you have so much, you know, silence and so much, uh, so many scenes that are just music. You know, it's, it's, they can feel a lot longer than they actually are just because there's, there's that, uh, you know, the way that they incorporate sound into it. And speaking of silence and sound, uh, here we are about to meet the star of the movie. As she is driving into Utah, we see the salt air resort off on the horizon. Now, how would you describe the salt air resort to someone who has never seen it before? Well, from when we first see it, uh, just from very far away, it's dark. Um, it's it's got that big top type of look. Um, you know, just from looking at it from far away. Once we actually get inside, um, you know, there's all these really bizarre features, uh, like the you got a, a big slide that you might see at a usual amusement park, but then it's also got all this uh, decor to it. Like there's a castle somewhere. Uh, we see these weird hanging drum type things. So, and there's all these 
gates and fences surrounding the place. There's a dried up lake, I think, next to it. Mm-hmm. So there's all there's all kinds of very weird features to it. And, um, you know, no lights in sight. You know, uh, most of the time when we're when we're looking at this place, it's dark. And uh, and that's for a very good reason. Yeah. And again, they didn't make this place up for the movie. They didn't decorate it. There's no, you know, special effects. It's just an old abandoned building that's been there for 60 years. And the director's like, I'm going to use that in the movie. So we just get lots of shots of her driving and seeing it off in the distance. And she's somehow fixated on this place. She just knows. She's like, huh, that's interesting. And again, it's uh, you got to see this movie just for the Salter Resort. It's the only living proof that this old building, you know, ever existed. And it's featured so heavily in this movie. She goes and explores it later. But yeah, there's nothing done to it to make it look creepy for the movie. It just is. They just film it. <laughs> yeah, and the the move uh, the location itself is is really it's more of a character than any of the other characters in this movie. Um, you know. Uh, and I say this in, in a good way, I guess, but Mary doesn't have too much of a personality herself, just in how rigid she is. And um, this makes up for that just with how out there it is and, and the choices that they do make with, with what happens inside of it. So, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a unique location. Um, I don't know where in the history of uh, the abandoned theme park genre this falls if this was the beginning of that if this was in the middle of it i don't know but um for for what it is it's definitely a very uh, creepy resort and i will drop a little trivia fact on uh, my listeners here's here's a mario favorite if you drive from southern california to las vegas somewhere out a little past barstow on highway 15 there's an abandoned water slide park I think it's called the Rockahula, or it was at some point. And it's just sitting there in the middle of the desert, and there's gates around it, and all the structures are still there, and it looks a lot like Saltaire. And every time I drive by it on the way to Vegas, I'm like, I want to get out and walk around there and take pictures, even though I know it's illegal, but I have never, I never actually have. But So there's your tip. If you were going to recreate this movie with a handheld camera and four friends, that's one place you can go, although my lawyers instruct me to say I did not tell you to go there. Yeah, well, you know, you could just pull a Utah and uh, have a disclaimer underneath that says, uh, just be careful. (laughs) Please explore safely. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so as she's driving and all these shadows and music are appearing and she sees the Saltaire Resort, we get the one of the first legitimately creepy scenes in the movie where all of a sudden in the passenger side or the window, she sees this corpse-like man he's like an old dude with a in a suit a dark suit with a white face just kind of staring at her through the window and she kind of shrieks and then later she sees him in the in the middle of the road right she sees him twice yep she sees him first time the first time in the most uh, reflective car windows that i've ever seen um and then the second time she sees him in the middle of the road and that causes her to uh cut the steering wheel and immediately uh, go over the road again so not even uh, 15 minutes into the movie, and Mary's already uh, gone off the road twice. <laughs> yes, she's, Mary is a terrible driver. Well, technically, she wasn't the driver the first time, so we'll give her a pass. Sure, that's fair. <laughs> but yeah, so this is the director, Herc Harvey, dressed up as, I would just describe him as the corpse man. I think he's just called Man in the credits. But he is this specter of death who will be following her the rest of the movie. He's like a stalker, very uh, reminiscent of Michael Myers following Laurie many years later in Halloween. 
Yeah, and he has no dialogue. Um, he doesn't make a single sound. There's no real explanation behind him that's ever given at any point. He's just there, and you have to accept it, and you kind of just have to figure it out on your own. Yep. Okay, so let's jump ahead here. So she gets to Salt Lake City for her job, and she stops at a gas station. And her first question you think would be, hey, where am I staying or where's my lodging for the night? But no, she asked the gas station attendant, what's with that creepy old carnival outside of town, that resort? And he's like, oh, that was a big bathhouse, big place. People used to go there, big resort, but it's kind of abandoned now. No one goes there anymore. And But she's just fixated on it. She just wonders what that was. And then she's like, okay, where am I staying? He's like, well, next door is the rooming house. So this is where we go next next door. We, she, we uh, meet her landlady, this old nosy lady, and her creepy roommate from across the hall, Mr. Linden. <laughs> and, you know, this uh, – the thing about this, uh, this house, Mario, and I'm a little upset that you neglected to mention it, but it ha- it's very special in the sense that you can take as many baths as you want in this place and nobody's gonna care (laughs) multiple times does mrs thomas the landlady mention that mary can take as many baths as she wants and she won't even care so this is you know high quality high quality place there's no judgments at this place if you're a bath hoarder no none at all Yes. But Mary has a nice room in this boarding house with her own bathroom and bathtub, as Brian pointed out. And across the hall is this creepy guy, Mr. Linden. He will be trying to get in her pants endlessly for the rest of the movie. It never happens. He is this creepy guy. But the first thing that happens after Mary moves into a room is she looks out the window. And again, lest you forget this is a horror movie, she sees that corpse guy from earlier standing out on her lawn looking up at her. Again, very reminiscent of we see a scene very similar to that in Halloween that John Carpenter uses. Yeah, and I think uh, I also thought it was interesting that she sees him the first time and then she goes back and looks at the window again. And this time she doesn't see him and she just smiles. She doesn't smile a lot in this movie. So um, I guess for now that she's just starting to uh, get used to seeing this guy, when she gets that little that little sense of security is when she's able to breathe a sigh of relief before things totally go off the rails. That might indeed be the only smile she has in the movie. That, I'm glad you pointed that one out. Yeah, the, uh, the only smile until Mr. Linden shows up. <laughs> yeah. That guy's just pure charm. Yeah, I will say that if this movie came out nowadays, uh, the Mr. Linden would just be uh, raked over the coals on Twitter. Um, He's, you know, he's something else, this guy. Yeah, there's different rules in play in this movie for dating in the 60s as opposed to, I guess, dating in a movie in the 2020s, where in the 60s, Mr. Linden will just fling himself at her, break down her door, basically, come into a room, barge in, and badger her until after the 10th or 11th no, she eventually says yes just to shut him up. So he is very persistent. Yeah, my thing with Mr. Linden is that he just reminds me of a cartoon character, kind of, just in the way that he talks. Uh, in the way that he moves, like in his facial expressions, like he he doesn't feel like a real person. Um, he kind of seems like the type of guy that would say "ya bang" if he had the opportunity. <laughs> uh, hopefully, okay. Thank you for the wonderful Friday the Thirteenth Part Six reference. You've slipped into a Carnival of Souls discussion. Well, you know, if you got nothing else, you just play the hits. <laughs> 
I know. I didn't want to explain that joke, but I was worried no one would get it. Yeah, that was a Friday the 13th Part 6 reference. Okay, so uh, Mary has moved in, and now we see their first day at her new job. She works in a church in Salt Lake City, which we're going to assume is probably Mormon. Just seems like a, a solid guess, a Mormon temple. I'm not sure, but uh, do they have, t- I don't know, you're not LDS, are you? You wouldn't know this. Do they have those pipe organs in Mormon temples, too? Uh, my only experience is that I've seen Book of Mormon on Broadway. So, you know, I can't, I can't speak one way or the other to okay. uh, the accuracy. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's Catholic, but she's playing this organ. And then, oh, the priest, the priest comes around. So it must be Catholic. So it's the only Catholic church in Salt Lake City, apparently. And he's listening to her play. She's practicing this old giant, ornate pipe organ in a church. And he's like, oh, that's very beautiful. But he's like, we should have a reception tonight to introduce you to the town. And Mary, who is an enormous, you know, stick in the mud, says no. And he's like, why not? I, I think it would be great. And she's like, I don't care to, basically. <laughs> she's like, yeah. I just want to play my organ. That's all I do. Yeah, and he says, uh, he says to her, I, I think one of the many lines in this movie that uh, seems like it's um, as if this was a, uh, a sitcom and the parent is giving a wisdom to a child where they just really, you know, hammer that lesson into them. He says to her, you cannot live in isolation from the human race. So I, I uh, you know, it's, it feels like this movie is trying to give you many different morals. And that's uh, one of those instances where the characters are very, uh, very on the nose with what they, uh, with what they say. <laughs> Good life lesson for the kids out there. You cannot live in isolation from the human race forever. Yeah, well, this was actually, um, you know, a, a message that they wanted to give out to uh, Japan during the 1800s. <laughs> so that's what Herc Harvey was going for. It was a, a treatise on Japanese isolation theory. Yes. And then uh, when uh, Admiral Matthew Perry came, you know, suddenly uh, it was like uh, a whole new awakening, which is <laughs> just like the priest in this movie. He, he's the representative of that. Wow. There's a ton of interpretation in this movie I somehow missed. Yeah. It's very subtle and nuanced. So anyway, she's playing the organ and they keep cutting to the stained glass windows and you see all these, you know, religious imagery. There's a lot of religious stuff going on in this movie as, as she's playing the organ. It's just you see all these, you know, symbols and stuff. And, and then the priest says, well, it would be good to introduce you to the town. Some of the women in town might not be comfortable. I love that. Oh, there's a sexy young organist in town. She's going to steal all the men. That's the That's the problem in Salt Lake City. But Mary... We'll have none of that. Mary just says, as long as they say I'm a good organist, I don't care. Yeah, the other women in the town must have heard that she came from a place that had a sexy calendar in their organ factory. (laughs) And so she's tainted. Oh, she's one of those big town girls from Kansas. (laughs) Those Topeka folk. That's right. She moves fast. (laughs) So, so yeah, so... uh, so this is Mary's new gig, playing in this huge church, and the priest is very excited to have her, even though she flat out says, I'm not really religious, I'm just here for the job, and he finds that a little troubling, and this will come back to haunt Mary later, but for now, it's just all just a gig to her, and she doesn't care, she's just here for the money. Yep, she is all work and no play. <laughs> yes. The only play is play organ, and that's it. <laughs> so she works and plays at the same time, she has found a loophole. Right, but somehow the thing that she's playing is the most miserable thing on this earth. <laughs> okay, so 
Mary, after church the first day, she's talking to the priest, as you do, as you introduce yourself to the new boss. And he's like, oh, would you like to explore the area? You're new in town. How about I take you around? And she's like, hey, how about that creepy old amusement park? Can you take me there? And he's basically, oh, no, child, that place is haunted. And she's like, please, please, please. And so they basically, he takes her out to salt air for the first time. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Mary is someone who explicitly doesn't like people and she doesn't like religion, yet she jumps at the opportunity to hang out with the priest at the carnival. <laughs> well, to be fair, he's the only guy in town who has not hit on her, so she's one for two at the moment. Right, we'll just wait until uh, the uh, the creepy man, and I'm not talking about Mr. Linden, starts talking to her. You know, I can only imagine what pickup lines he'll whip out on her. <laughs> well, as long as that's all he's whipping out, that's all we can do. <laughs> Okay, so the priest takes Mary out to this old abandoned amusement park, and this is the first time we really see Saltair, you know, in its prime form up close, and she's like, can we go in there? Can we walk around? And he's like, oh no, it's illegal and dangerous, and I'm a man of the cloth, I could not do that. He's, she's like, well, I'll just have to come back myself sometime. And he's like, I don't think that's a good idea, but she's determined. She wants to explore this place, and she will come back, but it's later in the movie. Yep, she'll come back multiple times, in fact. No matter what, no matter you know how many times she's told to just not bother with this place, she is determined to get there and explore it. Okay, so we're almost halfway through the movie already. I swear to God. <laughs> okay, so Mary goes back to the house. I'm going to jump through. Some of the stuff with Mr. Linden is kind of gratuitous. It takes too long. We'll just say the short version. This guy hits on her a lot. She says no. He tries to see her in the bath. He tries to peep through her door. She says no. But she gets creeped out because she keeps seeing this corpse man outside her window. One time she sees him at the base of the staircase inside the boarding house. And she's like, somebody's stalking me. And she starts screaming. And so the other people in the house are wondering, what the, what the hell's wrong with this girl? Yeah, and then one night, you know, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, she sees him out the window and then uh, one thing that I thought was interesting was that she sees him and I think screams or whatever. And then it immediately cuts to her alarm clock ringing. Um, and so what that tells me, the way that I interpret what the way that I interpret that is that 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 was a dream because, um, you know, just that type of transition from the oh, the scary moment into her waking up and, instead of, you know, just lingering on it and and seeing what her reaction is from there. That's the way that I interpreted that. I'm not sure if you, you know, saw it any different. Um, but, you know, she has that experience that night. And then she wakes up the next morning and Mr. Linden is greeting her with uh, some coffee that he, you know, wanted to give her just to start the day. He's just a friendly guy. He's a friendly guy. And, um, you know, if this was a Friday the 13th movie... Uh, we would probably have a 10 to 15 minute scene of him making that coffee that he then gives her. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, but no, to get back to your point, the interpretation of the dreams. Yeah. The director, again, the director and the writer of this movie, there were two different guys. I forget who the writer was. They have a lot of big ideas about dreaming and consciousness and heaven and hell and alive and dead and souls and soulless and religion. And again, it's such a short movie and it's kind of cheap that it's kind of, it's, they kind of half go into it some of the times, but I do agree with you that they really play with the idea here of, is she awake or not in some of these scenes? Yeah. This movie throws out uh, a lot of different questions and then gives you no answers. Um, and it explores a lot of dreaming. It explores a lot of, you know, just, Playing hallucinations, 
you know, it explores this idea of being, having this out of body experience where you're not even existing to everyone around you. So it throws everything at the wall and, um, you know, and you kind of just have to sit on it and make those conclusions yourself. But again, you can see why it inspired so many directors over the years, because it's open-ended and it's, again, it's been described as an art film. It's kind of artsy because it doesn't draw a lot of conclusions. But I, again, I can see why these people like David Lynch would like this movie. It's right up his alley. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this, some would say that this movie was the inception of its time with how it plays with dreams. Yes, it's exactly the same type of movie. Yes. <laughs> OK, so the next morning now Mary's world is going to get real weird. So she's had her first day in town. She's being stalked by this corpse. She's got a creepy guy across the hall. She uh, plays organ in a church and has no passion for it. And the next morning she has breakfast with Mr. Linden. And she get, drops a lot of quotes here. She's like, you know. In daylight, it's a different world. When I look around and look outside, it's just the normal world. At night, that's when all the dreams and the fantasies begin. And if he, of course, takes that is that she's hitting on him. But no, she's just saying, no, I don't like the night. The night is scary to me. And so that's what she's hinting at, that things are going to get increasingly more weird for her. Yeah, she'll, uh, there's multiple times throughout the movie where she'll throw out this uh, very random quote about the daylight or whatever, and she'll try to say something that seems like it's profound, and then everyone else will just kind of brush it off. Um, and I think that's interesting because Mary says herself that she's a realist, that she's, you know, she is very convinced that the things that are happening to her are real. And then once she uh, starts saying all these, uh, out there things is when everyone else has to try and shut her down. So she's kind of a character who's at war with herself, um, with how she comes into the movie, believing certain things, and then how she now has to challenge those beliefs, those beliefs based on what she's experiencing and, and how other people are reacting to what she's saying. Yep. And now we are going to get one of the big standout creepy scenes of the movie. This is maybe my favorite scene in the movie where she's going to spend the entire day shopping. She doesn't have to just work, start work today. She has the entire day in Salt Lake City to go shopping at the mall. And she goes out to this mall, which is apparently this real store in Utah that still exists today. I forget the name of it. But... This Brian, here's another example of the great cheap guerrilla filmmaking they did in this movie. They did, the director did not want to pay for a permit to film in the mall, so he just basically walked up to the checkout clerk at this the, the girl at, at this register, and he's like, "I'll give you twenty bucks. Just don't notice us filming over here for the next twenty minutes." <laughs> so uh, it's really them just filming in the middle of a mall during a, a shopping day, just a regular day. There's no permits or anything. It's just them walking around in a mall. Is there any explanation as to what the beeping noise is in the background of the scene? Because we hear it a lot. And oh, I, I didn't. I have to listen for it. I didn't catch that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's supposed to mean anything. I think it's supposed to be just a, a mall sound, but I, I had no idea what it meant. Yeah, but there's no greater meaning to the scene. They just didn't have a permit, so they just walked into a mall and started filming. So, yeah, she's in a mall. She's trying on a dress. She's buying a new dress for work. And all of a sudden, and again, this is one of the standout scenes in the movie, her world starts to get all blurry. Everything blurs, and the color of the film, the actual stock, changes colors a little bit to more sepia. Is that how to pronounce it? I think so. But all of a sudden... Nobody can hear her or see her. She's like in a different plane from everyone. And she's walking around talking to people in the mall and nobody knows she's there. And it's the weirdest scene. Yeah, she tries to uh, talk with the girl who was helping her with her dress. She has no response. Tries talking to the other customers, no response. Um, and then I guess she just decides to leave the, the store for some reason. 
Um, if you ask me, she could have used that opportunity while she was invisible or whatever it was to steal some clothes. Mm -hmm. um, not, not condoning that, but that is something that she could have potentially done. Um, but she begins to run around all over the place, all around town, and the only sound that she can hear is the sound of her footsteps. Uh, so nobody can hear her, and she can't hear anybody else. The only thing that she can hear is the sound of her own footsteps as she's going around town. Yeah, and this is the stuff you mentioned earlier where they cut out all the sound in the movie, and it's just like Foley artists just of her heels tapping on the pavement. It's a really effective and eerie scene when you take all the sound out of a, a shot except for her footsteps. And she's just running around town trying to figure out what's happened to her. She somehow you know, negated herself out of existence where she's kind of half in the world, half out, and she doesn't know what's going on. And I just love the way it's filmed. Again, this is just a first-time filmmaker with no money. This is just a scene he came up with. Now, I have to ask, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, why did they focus on the jackhammer? Well, because sound. They're trying, they're they're just saying that all the sounds are, are gone to her. And so they focus on things that would be loud, a jackhammer, road construction. I mean, you could look at it as some kind of sex metaphor. I don't know if that was intended, but I, no, I believe it was just they wanted something loud that would show to the audience, oh, look, all the sound is gone. Now, do you know how much the, the cost of renting the jackhammer was? There is no way he paid any cent for that jackhammer. He just walked around until he found a jackhammer. So they were just walking around Salt Lake City trying to find the loudest thing possible in the hopes that they could shoot it. The more I read about this movie, yes, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> <laughs> Again, take out the music. It's just them walking around Salt Lake City. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so she fades in and out of existence for a while. And finally, these she hears birds chirping. And all of a sudden, she's back in the world. And uh, she goes to a water fountain to get some water to, you know, to freshen up. And she had quite a little shock. What just happened to me? And as she's there, she looks up and she sees the corpse man who's been following her. She screams. And as fortuitous as it would be, she runs right into the arms of a doctor who says, Hum, come to my office. What's wrong with you, dearie? Yeah. And one thing that I thought was interesting is that she very clearly sees the man based on her reaction. But we as the audience don't. <laughs> yes. They um, forgot so, to include the shot. <laughs> yeah, all we see is just a, a, a body walking into into frame, and we can assume that it's the man, but we never actually see his face. So um, you said that they forgot to include the shot. I would believe that. I don't know if there's any other meaning beyond that, but I just thought that was something uh, that I wanted to point out. I noticed that exact same thing. I'm like, we never actually saw the shot of the bad guy. We just see her screaming and running. Yeah, and then, I mean, admittedly, also, if you are this guy, it is a little creepy just to walk up to someone as they're at the water fountain, you know, and just, just stand there. He's very much in her personal space. Yeah, so this doctor sees this woman screaming hysterically because she thinks somebody's following her, even though nobody's there, and he takes her back to the office. And now we delve a little into the psychology. They actually tried to delve into what's wrong with Mary, and they try to introduce a subplot here where... Basically, he says, uh, you don't have a husband? You don't have a boyfriend? She's like, no, I don't like people in my world. And he's like, that's not very healthy. Maybe you're seeing these visions and this guilt that you don't belong to a church. You don't belong to a community. You have no men. You don't feel love. Maybe you're inventing people out of guilt. And she, she doesn't buy this at all. And what else? He says, it's, oh, also, you were in a, a car crash recently. Perhaps you have a head injury of some sort. Yeah, he, he throws out a lot of different ideas here. I interpret the scene as uh, the movie trying to be like, okay, so this is like around the halfway point of the movie. You've seen a bunch of different things. Let's let's try and, you know, maybe explain them a little bit. You know, this is just like a little catch up for everyone. 
but they throw out all these ideas about if she has like survivor's guilt, if you know, if if it's just her imagination, if uh, the man is supposed to represent her father or something like that. So there's all these different ideas that are thrown out there. Um, but but Mary is insistent on the fact that she's a realist. She's not imagining anything. Um, you know, so so even even though there are all these theories being thrown at her, she's she's consistent with what she believes that, you know, she's not imagining anything, despite what she had just experienced where she was, you know, not noticed by anybody for an extended period of time. <laughs> I love the irony in this scene. I was just thinking about it right now where she's like, no, I will not expect, I will not accept any fantastic, you know, explanation from behavior. I'm a realist and I am, I am fixated in reality. And then she's like, you know where the solution must be at that old, creepy, haunted, abandoned amusement park. Yeah. And this, this, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's, it's, she's constantly at war with herself where she, she says, oh, I'm a realist. I'm a realist. But yet she's still so fixated on this carnival, even though, you know, other than whatever sensation she has, there's no reason to believe that the carnival has anything to do with it. Yeah, she's just obsessed with that place. And she is she is diagnosed herself. And doctors love when you do that. Oh, well, here's my diagnosis. I have to go to the haunted amusement park. It's there's something there that will explain my problem. And the doctor's like, no. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to go out there. And he's like someone should go with you. It's not safe. And she's like, no, nah, I think I'm good. I'll go by myself. So here we go. She's going to traipse off to the old creepy solitaire resort. And this is another great scene in this movie. The first time she's there all by herself. Yeah. She goes there um, against the orders of, of everyone else, against the orders of the priest, against the orders of the doctor who stated that he's not a psychiatrist. So I'm not sure what he is exactly then considering <laughs> he was having a very psychiatrist like conversation. <laughs> I'm a dermatologist. I'm here to pop your pimples. Yeah, he's the best podiatrist in Salt Lake City. <laughs> okay, yeah, so explain this scene. Again, this is, I mean, this is like uh, Nirvana to me, people who love abandoned amusement parks, where she actually just wanders around in an abandoned solitaire resort by herself as the camera just follows her. And there's like no music or anything other than the organ music. It's really just 10 minutes of pure atmosphere. Yeah, so this is the first time we actually see the inside of the carnival, but she's walking all around. Her eyes are lifeless. She is pretty much expressionless throughout the entire thing. So it's basically like she's kind of in a trance the whole time. She's walking around, and you know, there's all these weird things happening to her. She passes by the slide, and then the, the mattress, whatever it was, goes down the slide by itself. Um, and I, I watched that scene a couple times just to look and see if we could see like a production assistant pushing it or anything. And mm -hmm. we couldn't. So I'll give them credit for that. <laughs> um, but like you said, there's she doesn't say anything. It's just the organ music and the occasional silence. And it's, you know, it's it's a very, very creepy scene because it makes you think that something's going to happen. Um, at, at least just with just the way that they're setting up this place. But really, all the creepiness in it just comes from the carnival itself. There, nothing actually happens to her. She's just exploring the carnival. But yet, we just feel so uncomfortable the entire time, just with the emptiness of it and the music in the background and the silence and her blank space or her blank face. So, you know, it's, it's a very uh, effective scene. And the next time she comes back to the carnival, it's, uh, it's not going to be this, this empty. So, uh, you know, she should be, uh, she should be grateful 
and of, uh, of what she has at this point in time. Yeah, at one point there's an old uh, ballroom where she walks in, and it's still got streamers and stuff from the ceiling from the last time they had a party there. And who knows how long ago that party was, like, 30 years old or whatever. But I just, when I watch that, I think of The Shining with the Overlook Hotel, all the ballroom scenes at the end. I'm like, oh, wow, so that's something maybe Kubrick kind of took for The Shining. I just, I, just, I just love the imagery in this whole scene, even though, like you said, nothing happens. There's one legitimately kind of creepy scene, like you said. She's walking by a slide, and a little mat that you would sit on to go down the slide comes sliding down right by her. And she looks up, she kind of jumps. But, like, there's no jump scares here. A lesser movie would have all sorts of stuff jumping out at her. There's nothing here. It's just pure dread. That's all you can say. It just feels like you're walking around a place dead people used to be, like a cemetery. Yeah, and, and I think um, part of the reason why this scene is also so effective is because it's the first time we see the carnival, and we are normally we're training ourselves to think that a bunch of crazy things are going to happen, but nothing happens. So that way, when the next time she comes to the carnival and all these insane things happen to her, you know, we're, we're unprepared for it because what we know and what she knows is this is just an empty carnival where you know, sometimes things will move by themselves. But then, you know, later on, once things really go insane, you know, this uh, this whole thing becomes a, a lot creepier just because we have this 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 quiet, empty, abandoned place where nothing's going on. OK, so here we go. We're going to get into the crazy stuff now. So she has been out here at Saltaire. She's explored it. There's really nothing other than it's just a creepy old resort that no one's been in for 20 years. She goes back to the uh, boarding house. Mr. Linden hits on her. After about the 11th time, she says, yes, fine, I'll go out with you to dinner tonight. And so they have a dinner date. And then she goes to church to practice her organ for the first time. Or just not the first time. I guess she's already been there once. But she just wants to spend some time. And we get a really creepy nightmare sequence here when she's playing this organ in the church for the first time. Yeah, this is completely horrific. I, uh, you know, I, I've been, I've made it clear that I do not like the organ, but... You know, this is like taking the creepiness to a whole other level just because, you know, while she's playing the organ, she's all of a sudden something just comes comes over her. And then she goes from normal to completely off the rails. And the way that her fingers move as she starts playing the keys just looks really gross and unnatural. And they show it a lot. Um, And then she sees all these visions of the carnival while they're while she's playing the organ um, you know, kind of like uh, kind of like earlier in the movie when um, when she would see visions of the carnival, even when she wasn't actually in it. Um, you know, we see uh, these demon people popping out of the water uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, the, the water I, that we could assume is is at the carnival. Um, things start spinning really fast. We see these dancers that start spinning really fast. And then uh, it, it the sequence ends with the man. Uh, the, I guess that's that's what he's known as the man. He leaves the dancing crowd and slowly walks up to the camera, uh, to appear as if he's going to choke Mary. Um, so it, it's like it's really in your face as he gets close to the camera with his hands outstretched, and it looks like he's going to choke you as you're watching it. And it's it's a very very disturbing scene. Yeah, and just yeah, it's it's a cool scene. You get the. She's in a trance. Her fingers are flying all over the organ. We cut to the stained glass in the church, and we see stuff like cast out devils written on the wall. Um, 
but yeah, she just sees this nightmare vision of the Salter Resort, and it's not empty this time. She sees all these dead people dancing around and the corpse man coming for her. And this is, again, one of the standout scenes in this movie. And she screams when he reaches out to grab her, and we, we immediately cut to the reality, and it's the priest, her new boss, grabbing her hand, saying, Why are you playing that profane ugly music in my church have you no sense of decency like because she's been playing this instead of you know lovely church music this creepy horror movie music yeah one i took this down one of the things he says to her is i feel sorry for you and your lack of soul so the, you know the, this movie really likes to hammer in the whole thing about souls and and how uh, the, the church is related to souls and how the music is related to souls and um, and I guess what they're trying to say at this point in time is that she doesn't have a soul. Um, you know, so that's something I guess that we can go into later once we try to interpret things. That's mm -hmm. something that I felt like uh, was an important line. I have definitely seen some interpretations of that as well that will – I'll spoil it a little for people. The, one of the arguments is – I'm not sure I agree with this or not – is that because she's not religious, she goes to hell. That's, that's her big sin. She doesn't believe in religion like everybody else. And they commented all throughout the movie, and because she's not religious, she is you know, taken by the demons down to hell at the end. That's, that's one interpretation, right? Yeah, well, I think that that makes complete sense to me because uh, the, the priest tells her to – essentially that she's fired. Um, and so she starts to get up to leave the church. One of the things he says to her is, you know, basically just don't turn your back on the church. We can still save you. And so um, I guess the implication there is that because she's without religion, that she doesn't have these uh, beliefs, that that's what's causing her to, you know, have all these strange behaviors and play this devilish music. And so uh, I, I think the way that I view that is, is the movie is taking a, a, a pro-religion stance and saying that, you know, she's in this, uh, this holy place, but she, because she's not engaged with it in any way, it's causing her to have this like out of body demonic experience. And I, I probably would not have agreed with you yesterday, but when I watched it today, and again, I saw that stained glass window and they immediately focus on the phrase cast out devils. Maybe I kind of do agree with you now. <laughs> Yeah, I think, and they make that, like, they very clear, too. Like, they, they focus on that. And I think uh, earlier in the movie, um, when she's at the church, they, she's staring at one of the windows, and the, the little thing that it says on that window is to heal sickness. And so I'm not sure what they're trying to say with that, but I think uh, they're very purposeful with what they're choosing to show, and, and they chose to show cast you know, to cast out the demons and, uh, and I guess to heal the sick in some way of all, of all the possible phrases that they could use. Those are the ones that they chose to focus on. Okay. All right. Well, we'll save that for the end here. Okay. So, yep. so she's fired from her job for playing profane music in the church and she's just kind of stunned and she goes outside and she has her date with Mr. Linden, blah, blah, blah. It's not really important to the plot. And they go back to the boarding house and he tries to move, make a move on her and come in and kiss her. And she initially says, yeah, you can come into our room. And then she says, no, I changed my mind. And he goes in for the kiss anyway. And she looks up in a mirror when he kisses her. And it turns out that Mr. Linden has been replaced by the corpse guy, the dead guy who's been chasing her the whole movie. And he's the one kissing her. And that's a pretty good little scare moment in the movie. And she screams. And all of a sudden she turns around and kicks Mr. Linden out and explains. She's like, there's somebody following me. And he was in the church. And he's at the resort. And I've seen him. And Mr. Linden says 
screw you, you're nuts, and bails on her. I'm not hooking up with a psycho broad. And she uh, basically, from here on out, is just one nervous breakdown until the end of the movie. Yeah, and I think this scene is important just as it shows a little bit of character development for her because, um, you know, she's made it clear how much she doesn't care about companionship with people. You know, she doesn't have any particular interest in being with people. But yet, um, when Mr. Linden offers to uh, spend the night with her, she agrees to that. And obviously, she doesn't want it in any sort of romantic sense, but she just doesn't want to be left alone. And, um, you know, I, I guess that uh, the whole thing in the church is kind of like a, a tipping point for her, where now she's, you know, recognizing, like, all the, the reality of the, the things that she's experiencing and she thinks that, hey, maybe being around people will give me a little bit of security. And so she's starting to, uh, you know, change her, her perspective on things based on what she's gone through and, and thinking maybe, oh, well, maybe if I do spend time with people, it'll, uh, it'll help protect me in some way. But alas, no such luck for poor Mary Henry is uh, basically she has no purpose in town anymore she's been fired from her job uh, she has to leave town in shame and the landlady's now mad because mary's moving furniture around in her room trying to block doors so this creepy guy this corpse can't get in her room the stalker and so the landlady kicks her out and so we're really the last 15 20 minutes of the movie here where mary's been kicked out of her job she's been kicked out of the boarding house and she just wants to leave town. She's silent. She just goes out to her car, packs up her bags, and drives out. But the town will not let her leave. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things uh, that happens before she leaves is that the doctor from earlier, Dr. Samuels, he shows up. And um, apparently she – we don't see this, but she apparently rejects the doctor's help, um, even though he's trying to help. And then uh, one of the things that he says uh, in, in reference to her uh, wanting to leave the city – uh, is uh, that I hope she can leave the city. So he's kind of, uh, you know, uh, throwing out the idea of even though she may want to physically leave the city, uh, she mentally might not be able to. Yeah, he has written her off as a basket case at this point. This lady's nuts. Yeah, and I think, you know, probably with good reason at this point, just kind of based on some of the things that are happening, yeah. Okay, so she tries to leave town and her car breaks down, the, the alternator or something goes out, her transmission, I forget, and she pulls into the gas station, I don't know if it's the same one as before, and he says, okay, uh, get in your car and I'll put her up on the racks and we'll fix the trans, uh, transition, transmission, sorry, fix the transmission, and as she's up there, this is the grand finale of the movie, from here on out, it's just all hell for poor Mary Henry. She dozes off, and when she wakes up, she looks over, and the creepy stalker corpse guy is standing in the garage looking at her. He has found her, and she screams, falls out of the car, and starts running back into town for help. Someone's, they're trying to kill me. Someone's trying to kill me, and she goes invisible again, just like before in the mall. Yeah, and I think this is another instance, and you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't see the man. I think we just see the shadow of his the feet. man. Yeah, his feet. Yeah, his, his feet. And so this is another instance where she clearly sees the man, but but we don't. And um, this is already established as being a dream sequence because she, she nods off and then, you know, all of a sudden that's when everything starts going crazy. Um, and so she's going all around town just like she was earlier, but nobody can hear her and she, she can't hear anything either. It's just you know, she and she's saying to herself, how come nobody can hear me? How come I can't hear anything? The only thing that she hears is the sound of her own footsteps. Uh, she tries to go to a, a taxi. Uh, the taxi just immediately drives away because they don't notice her. 
she uh, she goes to the bus station and she tries to get a bus ticket, but nobody can hear her too. So, um, you know, it's she's just in completely just in her own hell right now. Yeah, again, just nervous breakdown. She's terrified. She There's a great visual here. She runs onto a Greyhound bus. The one thing she can hear, I always thought this was interesting, she can't hear any sounds when she's invisible and the world is fading out. But she does hear eastbound bus now boarding gate nine, which I thought was interesting because if you think about that, east from Salt Lake City would be back to Kansas. I believe this is the town telling her, return from where you came, which makes sense at the ending if you think about it. Yeah, I noticed this too on the second time that I watched it, that she all of a sudden can hear the, the voice of the announcer. And they make it very clear too. Um, I, didn't, I didn't pick up on the whole eastbound, so therefore it must be Kansas thing. But when she goes on the bus, she sees uh, the bus is full of uh, demon people. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I saw that is they're luring her to come onto the bus. I think uh, it's been, you know, made pretty clear over the course of the movie that the the demons want her to join them, and so I saw this as okay, come on the bus with us, you know, come join us, um, you know, and so it, it, it's them getting into her mind, saying, okay, now now you can you can hear us. What we're saying is come to where we are on the bus. Yeah, although I should clarify, you keep saying demon people for people who haven't seen this movie, they're not demon. It'd be closer to zombies. They, I mean, that's what they would look like, to put an image in people's heads. It's just these white-faced, corpse-looking people sitting on a bus smiling. They're just dead. They look dead. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's a good way of describing it, too. I only use the language of demon uh, just because in the description for this movie when I watched it, it used the word demon. So. Really? Yes. It's a, Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, pull it up on uh, on HBO Max on what it says, but uh, the, 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 the description that they have is, a church organist battles demons and delusions after a deadly car accident. Okay, I'll give you that. But, yeah, if, for people who have not seen this movie, that's not – if you're picturing demons, that's not how I would describe them. Right. They look like people, but they just – they look like dead people. Yeah. Okay, so Mary is just screaming. She can't – nobody – she can't get out of this town. There's de- undead people surrounding her trying to get her. It's just everyone against her, and she runs towards the doctor's office, the only one person who has ever listened to her this entire time. And at some point, she fades back into into the real world. Those birds start chirping again. She's all of a sudden back in our dimension or whatever, and she goes to the doctor's office. And here we go. The last five minutes of the movie is her just explaining her situation to the doctor as his back is turned to her, because as he is wont to do, he takes notes as she's talking. But we're going to get a good scare here, one of the best scares in the movie. Yeah, so uh, she's talking to him, and I think, and maybe this is just me completely misinterpreting things. It looked like from, from this shot that her hair was a lot blonder than it was before. I don't know if that's supposed to mean anything, but um, she's telling the doctor about her problems, and then he swivels around in his chair, and it's not the doctor, it's the the creepy man the 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 zombie man yeah of um, course he just yeah he gives her this, this little smile and then she gets up and screams and runs right towards the camera well the reason her hair looks different i think i i mentioned it earlier when she's fading in and out of existence and nobody can hear her they actually change the color of the film stock and they change the color so maybe that's what you notice is all of a sudden when she jumps back into the real world maybe her hair's blonder that could be it yeah i mean i didn't notice um, you know, I, I noticed the transition effect that they use when she's stripping into the when she's uh, 
going into the dream state. I didn't notice any change in the color, but um, that could very well be it. Okay, and right before, we're going to have a big showdown. She's going to go off to the Saltair Resort to settle all this once and for all. But she has a couple of quotes here she tells to the doctor that I'll probably use one of these as the stinger at the end of the episode. She's like, I don't belong in this world. Something separates me from other people. I don't belong. I don't fit in. And she says, everywhere I turn, they won't let me go. They're blocking my escape. And she talks about the corpse man. She says, he's trying to prevent me from living. He's trying to take me back somewhere, which will become very important in our discussion later. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because she is is not given any type of information that would give her that indication. So, you know, her her saying that is just like all of a sudden she's just, you know, all these things are, are hitting her and she's she's realizing, oh, this might be what's happening. And, and it kind of, you know, it helps the audience a, a little bit understand things, too, even though her perception of reality is completely warped. It um, it's probably the most um, distinct explanation for everything that's been going on so far. Okay, and here we go, the the big grand showdown. She drives out to the Saltair Resort, the abandoned amusement park, once and for all. She somehow knows that the answer to all her questions is out there, and she is not going to like what she finds out, is she? No, definitely not. And <laughs> when when she comes back there, she immediately goes back to that lifeless expression that she had earlier. Um, so she is she's just drawn to this place, and we got a lot of we got a lot of really cool shots. Um, in particular, I like the one where it's all dark and we see her uh, figure in the darkness walk up towards the, uh, the lit up, uh, dried up lake as it is. I think that's that's probably my favorite shot of all the ones that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, they zoom in on something at the dried up lake and I wasn't sure what that was. Like It looked like it was posts or something like that. <laughs> I wasn't sure why they chose to focus on that, but but they did. I was wondering uh, that, too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and, and am I am I correct in saying that this is a dried up lake? This, I believe, is the Great Salt Lake that the resort sits on the side, and it's probably at low tide or it's receded at certain points of the year. So that's probably the point when it's at lower tide, and the, it, that used to be covered with water, but it's not right now. Okay, yeah, that makes that's sense. That's my guess. Yeah, sure. Uh, I know the director. The director mentioned, as an interview I read somewhere, he said he shot an entire roll of film that they overexposed and they couldn't use it in the movie. And it was supposed to be all these corpses rising out of the water and walking across the sand into the Saltair Resort to do their little dance. But they couldn't use it because they ruined the film. But I think when they're zooming on the posts, I think that's probably would have been some kind of indicator of where they were walking or something. I'm not sure exactly what that was. Okay. Yeah. I mean, from what we do see, we do see some shots of the corpses coming out of the water, but, um, yeah, it I doesn't go next, anywhere. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. The next time we see them is they're in place getting ready to dance. So we don't, you know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, they're there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll sum this up so we can start, uh, interpreting this movie. She goes into the dance hall and she sees all these corpses dancing. And in reality, the director just went to some, uh, Mormon dance Academy and paid a bunch of extras, some dance students here. I'll give you 10 bucks. Just dance for me for about an hour on film. And they're all dressed up like dead people dancing this slow ballroom dance. It's very creepy. She just sees all these corpses dancing. And then she sees the corpse man, the main leader guy who's been stalking her the whole movie and they're dancing. Except he's dancing with a dead version of her. She's like pale and lifeless. And Mary sees him dancing with a dead version of her and she screams. It's so horrific. And she just bails and runs out onto the beach. 
Yeah, so that's kind of like the trigger for these corpses, because when she screams, they just start chasing after her. And, you know, so far in the movie, they haven't really been acknowledging her that much. They're kind of just doing their thing. They're dancing by themselves. But when she screams, they just they don't waste any time and they just take off right after. And I know um, I'm sure I'm sure you are probably aware of this, of like the 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 scene of all the zombie characters uh, chasing after the, the main character, obviously what that uh, ends up inspiring, right? Uh, Benny Hill? Well, I was going to say that this was actually the inspiration for the opening scene of A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. Yeah, this, so is she, would she be uh, Paul or John? I would say that uh, in this instance, uh, the character of the corpse man would be played by Paul's grandfather. <laughs> Uh, and he's a very important character in that movie. And he's very clean, if I recall. Yeah, very, very clean character, but a little, uh, very dirty in his, uh, in his personality. <laughs> well, this was only two years before A Hard Day's Night, I believe. So it very well could be this could be the scene that inspired the <laughs> Beatlemania. <laughs> I don't know a carnival of souls, but I do know a Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> when is the carnival of souls coming to Liverpool? This is why I bring Brian back, you guys. He can make me laugh with random Beatle jokes. <laughs> well, my favorite part of the movie is when uh, the credits roll and Obla D Obla Da starts playing. <laughs> so, was Mary the Walrus? Is that the key to this movie? Yes, and and then uh, the carnival actually takes place in an octopus's garden. <laughs> All right, so she is chased out by hundreds of zombies, and including the main guy, who if I, I believe is called Mr. Kite at this point, if we're keeping up our Beatle jokes. But yeah, all the all the undead people chase her out to the beach, and it's just this creepy scene of all these you know undead people surrounding her and swarming around her, and she's screaming, and she does a great job. Again, she's a good actress, uh, Candace Hillegas, and it ends with her collapsing on the beach and all these undead people surrounding her and falling on top of her, and it's really just horrific. And then we go to do 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 the surprise twist ending. Yes, and so um, you know, Mary's story ends with all the uh, the corpse creatures coming up in her face, and then when we come back, we have uh, I guess a couple of uh, police investigators along with the priest and the doctor, and they're describing that they see uh, her footprints and her car is still there, but all they see is a handprint and she's not there at all. Um, and then what we see from there is it goes back to the original uh, river from the first scene of the movie with the drag race. And uh, they pull the car out of the water. And what do we see? We see the corpses of Mary's friends. Uh, one of them blinks at one point. I noticed that. <laughs> and uh, we also see the corpse of Mary herself. So she was dead all along. Yep. An inspiration for the sixth sense. Yeah. And that's the movie. It just ends right there. Mary was dead all along, and they offer no explanation, no interpretation. And this is the fun part where Brian and I get to talk about what the hell this movie means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, the great thing is, I'm sure we won't come to any sort of uh, conclusion whatsoever, because there's no right answer. <laughs> okay, I will let you start. So, so sum it up for people. This girl gets in a car crash. She dies. And everything that happens after that may or may not just be in a dream in her head. We're not sure, but that's the implication. She crashes. At the end of the movie, we see she was dead. So everything in the middle just didn't really happen. And here we go, Mr. Uh, TV uh, film student. What, 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 what would your interpretation be? 
Well, you said that some people could say that this entire thing was a dream in her head. Mm-hmm. But the the thing that I say to counter that is the fact that the the corpse characters are like she said, they're always trying to beckon her back. And so what that tells me is that if this was a, a dream, you know, that wouldn't that wouldn't be the case because she would already be dead and this would all be nonsense. But because she's being constantly beckoned back by these by these corpses, you know, that obviously has got to mean that for some reason or the other, she's still clinging on to life at some point. And, you know, there are multiple times throughout the movie where she is fading in and out of reality. We get this distinct transition effect when she's in the dressing room and then uh, later on when she's, um, you know, in, in the car. And I, I don't know. My confusion lies in the fact that it seems like we have dreams that are distinctly dreams. Like I said earlier, there is a part where she looks out the window, she sees vision of the, visions of the carnival, and then it cuts to her alarm clock. So that is obviously a dream. That's the way that I see it. Um, but then separate from that, when she has her whole moments of phasing in and out of reality, she is also earlier in the movie, she nods off and is doing things and then she fades out of reality. So it's kind of like she's experiencing this weird uh, in and out of reality thing while she's simultaneously inside of a dream. Mm-hmm. And so there's like separate layers of her, I guess, uh, experiences and insanity. And so in terms of coming to a final conclusion about what's going on, I really just have a page of different anecdotes that say to me different things, but I'm not able to come to a specific conclusion. And I'm hoping that you know, we can talk through this a little bit more so I can understand the way that you're coming from and maybe it can help me come to a conclusion a little bit better. But what I see is a lot of different anecdotes and not a lot of them have correlations to each other. Um, So I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, the first thing I have to say is you have to remember this was a first-time director, first-time, like, screenwriter. They didn't really do this. So I think they're throwing a lot of ideas at you all at once and they don't necessarily all land. So I don't I know I don't necessarily know is that's intentional or that's just they didn't really know what the story was. They're just given as much as they can all at once. That's one interpretation. But then again, I've read, you know, just simplifications of the story. I was reading one summary. Someone, you know, sum up Carnival of Souls in like 30 words. And they say like, oh, a lady gets in a car crash. But because she's an atheist or not religious, she doesn't go to heaven. Her soul lingers in between the worlds. She doesn't, they don't really know. She doesn't know if she's alive or dead. And so death has to come bring her back because she doesn't, she doesn't know where she is. She's like in poltergeist, you know, the ghosts don't know where they are. They don't know they're dead. And so she's caught in this weird world in the middle. And that's the corpse guy all along is just death. Just trying to beckon her down to the world of the dead where she belongs. She doesn't know that yet. She fights it. So, I mean, it's, it's somewhere in the middle. I, I don't really get too much into the dream aspect. I think the dream stuff, a lot of it's a red herring. I don't really know if it's any more complicated than she's dead and just doesn't know it yet and death has to help her. But then what's the significance of the carnival in this case? That's the thing. I, it's like it's the, the gateway. It's the gateway. But, I mean, it's, it's supposed to be the gateway. I don't think that they do a good enough job in the movie explaining that. I think the carnival is a cool location the director found that they wrote a movie around, and that's about it. I don't, I don't think it's, there's much bigger picture than that. 
Okay. Yeah, because I think another thing that I'm caught on is the fact that, you know, we there are all these strange things happening in the carnival, but then there's also all the corpse characters are just dancing around, like as if this was um, like a regular thing that they do, mm-hmm. you know? And then it's not until she screams is when all of a sudden they start coming after her. Yeah, I mean... Again, you could go down so many different rabbit holes with how you want to interpret this. I I think there's less there than you think there is. That's my impression. And I've seen it a lot more than you. And not saying that I know more than you. Just your interpretation or uh, view of this movie may change the more you watch it. Because mine has changed over the years the more I see it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could be the type of thing where you are so desperately trying to find answers that you end up creating a lot more questions than you need to, when Mm -hmm. a lot of time the answer is just there is none. Um, Like, one thing that I put in my notes was that at the end of the movie, um, the characters that are are present for, uh, you know, talking about how Mary is suddenly missing are the priest and the doctor. And both of these characters throughout the course of the movie are seen as like, um, I don't know, like the they let out a bunch of wisdom. They're the ones that are giving out all these uh, uh, lessons about uh, your soul and about imagination, whereas she's always talking about reality, reality, reality. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think where typically people would find that, you know, the, the priest and the doctor might necessarily might not have a lot of similarities with each other. In this sense, they're kind of like the grounded parts of the movie mm-hmm. that are, um, you know, connecting her to these uh, outer experiences that she's having and are helping her to interpret them in some way. Um, so I, I don't know what the significance of, of them is necessarily, but I do think that religion definitely plays a part in it, just in the fact that she... the most surreal experience she has over the course of the movie is in the church when she's, you know, just doing her thing and, and, and playing the organ. And then all of a sudden things go crazy. Um, that doesn't happen anywhere else. And I think that there's, that's something that's got to be said about that. Yeah. And the movie tries so hard to beat this religion subplot across that, as you pointed out, they keep going back to it and they mention it and it just keeps coming back. So the director obviously intended that to be part of the story. Now, whether you think it landed or not, that's a whole different question. I'd see, I would argue this is not a great movie. Like, if you had a budget and maybe people that had made more movies like this before, I think you could really land this as a great movie. But I do think it's really effective for, despite its flaws and cheapness, that it somehow works. I'm always kind of shocked it works because the guy is so good at just imagery and sound and just, you know, progressing a story. I don't necessarily think the themes all work. That's my interpretation. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that this movie is trying to say a lot of things, but doesn't really end up saying much um, just because it's so inconclusive with everything and because there's so many ideas that are thrown at the wall. And so what the moral is of this story, I don't know. Um, But I I, I definitely agree with you in the sense that its effectiveness doesn't come with, I guess, the story itself, but more of how it tells the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it chooses to pace itself, how it chooses to show certain things but not show other things, how it chooses to uh, just give us all these sounds that are really make us feel uh, a part of this really dark and, and dreary experience. 
Yeah, and again, this movie gets described often as a dream, a nightmare, just uh, an art film. Uh, my wife, when we were watching it today, she's like, you know, nothing happens in this movie. And I'm like, I know, but it still works. And that's, that's always been my argument with Halloween, too. Nothing happens in Halloween, either. It's really just, you know, a couple things happen at the end of the night, but it's all atmosphere. And I am a sucker for atmosphere movies, for mood movies, for music, where the music just, you know... Uh, describes the entire movie the music just defines everything but yeah this movie is just like halloween in that sense where there's not a whole lot that goes on it's just mood and i think it really just that's why i always recommend it to people like the themes yeah i don't know what's really there i mean i've seen lots of discussion about it over the years i've never seen anything that swayed me one way or another but man the mood and the eeriness i will always come back to and that damn salt air resort yeah, the resort is a very interesting location. Um, what's the name of that place that you had mentioned earlier that was like this place? Well, uh, there's one in at uh, Waterslide Park. I think it's called Rockahula. It's on the way to Las Vegas. Okay, yeah. So I am going to look into that place um, myself just because uh, it, it's a shame that the Salt Air Resort is no longer, you know, is no longer with us. Um, <laughs> not, you know, much like much like Mary. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, it, it is a pretty cool location and it's, you know, it's cool with uh, what it is by itself, but it's also cool with how they choose to show it to us. Yeah. And and to be fair, Salter Resort is still there. It just looks different now. They've rebuilt it since I think in the 80s or 90s. So it is still there, but nothing like this movie. And uh, with that, I believe we've done it. I, you have you have successfully watched a movie for the first time. Come on and intelligently described it and accurately. Uh, I, I was going to say I was going to say accurately recommended, but I'm, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Do you recommend this movie to horror fans who have not seen it before? Yes, I would definitely recommend this movie to people. But that being said, you know, if you're my friend and I'm going to recommend that you watch this, I'm just going to make sure that I'm not around when you watch it. <laughs> yes. Please leave Brian out of it. He has suffered enough. It's, again, it, this is one I've had good success with over the years. It's old. It's dated. It moves slow. Nothing happens. It's only an hour long. Yet for some reason it works, and I don't know why, but I will continue to recommend it to people. And I'm very glad we had a chance to talk about it on uh, Horror Month this year. Sure. Yeah. And this this was a uh, surely a, a horrifying discussion for a, uh, a horror movie. <laughs> yes. With with some Beatles jokes thrown in. Sure. Yeah. Well, this, this is going to get cut out. But, you know, it, it's just like Survivor Historians where, you know, you always like to have a little bit of, uh, of, of Beatles when you're first starting out. <laughs> yeah. There's no way that joke makes it. No one will get. That. No, I know. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, I want to thank you for stopping by, and now that you have subjected yourself to my experiment, I am willing to discuss if you would like to come back for a third time, and you introduce me to a movie, perhaps. Great. Well, you know, I, I think a movie that you would really enjoy would be a Scream 2. <laughs> Damn you, Feral. You know, I, I I don't know if if you want to go into this, but can we just rehash this a little? Because I was listening to the 100th episode, and you know, I was told that I was I was a little combative the the first time around. <laughs> well, other people have told me that. I don't remember you being combative. I thought it was fun because you actually would challenge me on some ideas. I wouldn't call it combative, but I've heard other people say, "Oh, that's the that's the episode where he argued with you," because no one no one does that usually. 
Well, you know, if, if you want, and I didn't listen to our episode, but, you know, I, I do think I, I come I come into this a little bit more prepared this time. So if you want to go for like a round two, just like very briefly with it, you know, I'm willing to entertain that. Well, you know, we're running real short on time as I look at my watch here, Brian, and my <laughs> the stab, the connection <laughs> getting real bad here. Well, I'll just say this. This is this is my this is my uh, my my knockout punch that I'm going to throw at you. How would you feel if someone said to you, oh, I hate not another teen movie because that just takes all these movies that I loved growing up and just completely dunks on them and makes a mockery of them? Because that's kind of like what you were saying with screen. And I don't see it that way. But I'm curious to know, you know, how would how you would feel if someone said that to you about a movie that I know you enjoy? Oh, let's see. I was not prepared for this. Now you're being combative, you dick. <laughs> no, um, yeah, no, I see your argument. That's a good point. I, I just happen to take horror movies very seriously, like good ones that take themselves seriously, like this movie. So I, I always bristle anytime horror gets turned into a comedy. I do not like when horror crosses over into a comedy because I think it's a cop out. So it's not so much that they're making fun of horror. I was more concerned that they're ruining horror. Well, because I think also part of the, the thesis of Scream is also, I think it's kind of on your side in the sense of, I know you are notoriously anti-sequel, anti-making mm -hmm. franchises out of things, and Scream is on the same side of you. Like, it's poking fun at these movies because, because they've evolved to this point. I think if, you, if Halloween was just one movie, I don't think Scream would have much of a leg to stand on. But because Halloween has all these different sequels and Friday the 13th gets completely outrageous. It's able to poke fun at those things and point out the different tropes in these things because things have progressed to that point. And it's on, it is in agreeing, it's agreeing with you with what it has to say about sequels. And then in the later screen movies, you know, they make fun of the idea of, you know, all, all the things that happened in trilogies and then all these reboots and stuff like that. And so it's on your side. So I think, you know, I think you're 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 looking at things a certain way, but if you if you you know if you give it another look, I think you might find that you and Scream have a have a lot in common. You know what I hate is that you're right. I can't rebut <laughs> that. <laughs> and you know another great thing is that uh, Scream really helped to propel the, the career of Jamie Kennedy. And so without <laughs> this movie, we wouldn't have Son of the Mask. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Here's why. Okay. Well, I will say when, when I first saw Scream, I kind of liked it. Like that was kind of fun, but that was always my thing. Oh, this is really going to ruin horror movies. That was my gripe with it. I just didn't like where it was going to go. So, but I will, I will respectfully agree that you probably are correct on all those things. It is on my side. And, uh, if not another, if, if I hate Scream, I really have to hate not another teen movie. But I will say I don't especially love 80s and 90s teen movies, so it's it's not quite the same analogy, but you're close. Okay. Well, you know, as long as I'm like halfway there, I'm willing to, to take this one as a win. <laughs> yes, you're living on a prayer. You're halfway there. We're going uh, straight Bon Jovi here. But, uh, but well, okay, one other gripe I had with Scream, we're running long here. I don't know if I'll cut this, but <laughs> I remember when Scream debuted and it turns out a spoiler that it's two killers it's two teen boys killing everyone at the end 
And I remember coming out of that theater with my true crime background. That's what I do is I know true crime studies. So I'm like, no, two teenage boys would never work together for a massacre at their high school. It'd be one. There's no way two teen oh, boys. So, I know. And then Columbine happened just a couple <laughs> years later. It proved me immensely wrong. So I do remember that was one of my gripes with Scream at the time that was quickly disproven. Yeah, and I think actually Columbine happening ended up affecting the rest of the Scream movies because they – no, I'm serious. They they had to, you know, use that as like, uh, you know, being a little bit more sensitive in terms of the violence that they showed because the later Scream movies kind of go into the whole idea of the media creating, um, you know, these these killers. The second Scream movie – one of the and there's two killers in Scream too. I hate to break it to you, but one of the killers says that he's doing it because he he wants to become famous and blame it all on on movies and horror movies in particular. He wants to say that you know they're the reason why he was doing these things, and so you know it's it's. I think that a, a lot of the the points that you have are are very much uh, uh, interwoven into the stories of of Scream and, and later on. Well, so this is now twisted. So if Columbine ruined Scream, does that make me pro-Columbine? Well, it depends. What is your opinion on Doom? <laughs> I don't like Doom, but I do like Marilyn Manson, so now I'm conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> we should stop. We're going to get in trouble. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, okay, you've given me a lot to think about. This Again, I love when Brian comes on, because Brian comes prepared, and he has ideas, and he likes bringing things up that are worth discussing. And this is something I mentioned on my 100th episode. All I ask from my co-host is have something to say. And Brian, you always have something to say, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, I do have a lot to say, and most of the time it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, I'm going to say it with some real conviction. <laughs> That's right. You're the Deputy Rick of Staff Picks co-hosts. <laughs> Yeah, bang. <laughs> All right. So uh, anything else you want to add before we sign off here? No, I uh, you know, just want to thank you for introducing me to the movie. Thanks for having me on again. If you want to do this again, you know, I, I, I'd love to be on uh, anytime you need me. Okay. I, I will more than like you, more than likely have you back, but it'll probably be a movie of your choice just as a thanks for doing this one by my request this time. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll find something good for you. Okay, and as always, thank you for listening. Again, this is Horror Month. I hope uh, you guys will seek this movie out, Carnival of Souls, the one from 1962. Do not, under any circumstance, find the remake that they did in the 80s or 90s. It is not worth it. The 60s black and white one is the one you want. And again, we'll be back with more horror movies. Once again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Make sure you know if you're dead. Bye. don't belong in the world. That's what it is. Something separates me from other people. <laughs>